Hi, I'm Takara Small. I'm the host of I'll Go First, a podcast all about the innovators and trailblazers in the Canadian tech world. I've been having great conversations with the founders of today's top companies that are changing the world and happen to live right here at home in Canada. If you want to know more about the minds and lives behind major companies in artificial intelligence, cannabis, DNA testing, and more, make sure to take a listen. Also, subscribe to I'll Go First wherever you get your podcasts. The legal industry is one of Canada's most established and competitive. Thousands of law students earn their degrees every year, but many of them are struggling to find an articling position that can help launch their careers. As legal technology improves, it's fueling fears that lawyers could be replaced by software that can complete tasks more efficiently and save firms a lot of money. I'm Sean Stanley, head of the Globe Content Studio at the Globe and Mail. Today, we'll meet two lawyers turned tech entrepreneurs who are changing the way law is practiced, and they have surprising things to say about what that means for the workforce. This This is is Industry Interrupted. Industry Interrupted. Interrupted. Thank you to Fidelity Investments, the sponsor of this episode. We live in a time of accelerating innovation. New technology is transforming our world and the investment landscape. Ask your financial advisor about Fidelity Investments or visit fidelityinnovators.ca. Canada's laws have evolved over time, but the way lawyers practice has remained largely the same. Law tech or legal technologies being embraced by a traditional sector that was once skeptical of change. One example is software that can predict the outcome of a case before anyone has even set foot in court. Benjamin Allery is the Osler Chair of Business Law at UFT or the University of Toronto. He's also CEO and co-founder of Blue Jay Legal, a Toronto company that uses artificial intelligence and machine learning to predict legal outcomes. So tell me, what's the thinking behind the services that Blue Jay Legal provides? So the thinking is that law is ultimately all about prediction. If you peel away the layers of what it is that lawyers are doing when they're giving advice, it's really about predicting what does the law require in a particular situation. And so as an academic, much of my work has focused on figuring out how judges exercise their discretion in making decisions. And mostly that's been backward looking. Uh, But the idea behind Blue Jay Legal and legal prediction is let's turn that on its head. What we've learned about how judges exercise their discretion can be used to predict how judges are going to exercise their discretion in the future. And that's fundamentally what legal advice is all about. And so it's extremely uh, interesting and useful for lawyers to be able to tap into this technology. So does it save time? Would you say that's, you know, one of the key aspects of it? So certainly it saves time. I would also add that it it does a phenomenally good job of predicting how judges are going to exercise their discretion because it's trained on all of the existing case law. And this is something that humans have a, a problem doing because we just don't have enough time to read all of the cases. So if you're trying to provide advice to a client, no one can stay up to speed on all of the case law as it gets decided. No client wants to pay a professional services firm to read all of the case law on a particular topic before formulating their advice. And so this is a way to save time, but also produce a better prediction about what would ultimately happen. And so the accuracy rates that we are able to achieve with our software are around 90%, which compares very favorably to shooting from the hip 
uh, by the the typical um, lawyer. Of course, with research, you can you can get your accuracy up at, to approach ninety percent, but it's very laborious and it's very costly for clients. Let's talk about the artificial intelligence side of this. How does that change the way? lawyers are practicing. What is it about the artificial intelligence side of it that is the real game changer here? It's really about that producing a prediction machine, right? So we're using artificial intelligence, harnessing this technology to produce really accurate predictions. But that's just one aspect that goes into a lawyer's work. Of course, a lot of the work of uh, a services provider is about really understanding the client's goals and objectives, what what it is about their context, the reason why they're seeking legal advice or why they're embroiled in uh, litigation. And so it provides the lawyer the, the support on the aspect of the job that is probably the most time-consuming, the research part, and allows them to really focus on uh, the other parts, which is producing results for their clients. How do the judges feel about the predictive side of it? This tends to be quite polarizing for the judiciary, uh, and you probably can understand why. Uh, on the one hand, one of the reactions is, wait, but I'm the judge. I'm the one who's supposed to be exercising the discretion. I, I have judicial independence, and so I'm, I'm supposed to be the one who's like the center of this. And people find it a little bit sometimes discomforting to think, oh, wait, there's a software that can replicate what I'm going to do. But my insight is so unique, and it's unique to every single case. How can this be? But the results sort of speak for themselves. So that's one reaction. That's the uncomfortable reaction. It's it's mostly, I think, an emotional reaction. It's like, oh, no, here come the machines. And that's not the way I would think about it at all. And so the way that I would think about it is the more positive reaction that many judges have, which is, oh, this is fantastic. So I, I can at a glance or very, very quickly within five or 10 minutes have my law clerk or I myself can use the software and figure out how these specific facts in this particular case fit into the the rich tapestry of cases that have come before. And I can very quickly figure out what the expected result would be in this kind of case. And then I can focus my efforts on understanding, oh, what, what's happening here that's special or different, which is really great. And then it means that they're not stepping accidentally out of line with the previous cases. And then, you know, when that happens, often they'll be reversed on appeal. And so no trial judge likes to be reversed on appeal. And so it's a way to actually safeguard your judgment. And so that's the more positive reaction. That's that's the one I myself espouse when I think about uh, this area. And would you say you get more of the positive or the negative reaction? Uh, I would say the positive, um, but it's not by a massive margin. So probably about two-thirds of the reactions are positive, and then one-third are are negative. Some of the negative reactions, though, I, I think are, are based on a misunderstanding of what we're trying to do. We're not trying to replace judges. In fact, judging becomes more important with this kind of technology, not less important. And it becomes more important because of that, that second aspect that I was discussing, which is, you know, it's all about trying to identify how the law should develop, how the law should change over time. And so what happens when we have this technology rolled out across many different areas of the law is that the no-brainer kinds of cases that do now still get litigated will tend to settle. And so the cases that actually still go to court are going to be those that are right on the boundary line. And so judging as a as an exercise is going to be more challenging, not less challenging. And so judges are going to be more important than ever in getting clarity to the law. If I'm a law clerk, and you made mention of law clerks earlier, or an articling student, do I need to be freaked out about this? Not at all, uh, because it's all about producing this prediction machine that's going to allow junior lawyers to avoid error and really master the law in a way that 
previously it was very, very difficult for them to do. And then what's the reaction from lawyers to this service? Yeah, lawyers react not so differently from judges. Many lawyers see it as a way to relieve some of the the frictions in their practice around the research. So lawyers often face the challenge of knowing that to produce a fully informed legal opinion is going to require a ton of research. And a lot of the challenge that they face in practice is that they can't pass on the full amount of time that it would take in order to produce a a fully uh, researched brief or opinion on a particular matter. And so they face this challenge of investing a lot of time into doing the research on a matter, but then not being able to, to bill the client for that full amount of the time at their ordinary billable rates. And so they end up writing off a lot of the time that they might have spent in doing the research or they rush it. And so they rush through the research and they run the risk of missing something, not looking at all the cases. And so that's also uncomfortable for a legal professional to be rushing an opinion uh, when the client is relying on it and often involving very uh, momentous things for, for that client's interest. And then on the client's side, what's the impact there? Like it sounds like maybe they'll save some money or maybe they'll get a better outcome. Maybe it's both. Yeah. So for clients, it's really fantastic news because what it means is the value per dollar spent on legal services is going to go up. What we're seeing is that it helps to foster settlement between parties because it brings them closer together. Historically, each side would would have their favorite precedents that they would cite, and often there's a significant gap between the precedents cited by one side and the other side to a legal dispute. This brings everybody on the same page. The algorithms are trained on the entire corpus of case law, and so it means that it's able to narrow the the dispute to maybe one or two critical facts, and so that's that's able to sharpen the conversation and maybe bring closure to these cases more quickly. So fewer cases end up in court, which is what it sounds like is potentially happening or going to happen. What is the impact on the law, generally speaking? Oh, so this is fantastic as well for the development of the law, because what it means is the the whole premise of the common law is that like cases should be treated alike and potentially different cases should be treated differently. This really allows that to accelerate because now when you have similar cases, uh, it's going to be very obvious through the software, whereas in the past and even up to now in many areas of law, there are many precedents that are lost through obscurity because people aren't referring to them. And so this allows all of those cases to be brought to bear on a particular case, which kind of gives the law more traction. And so it allows us to kind of zoom in on the uncertain aspects of the law and get greater clarity. So as judges are dealing with those tricky cases on the margin going forward, we can kind of zoom in on those legal boundaries and get greater resolution as to how that uncertainty should be resolved. So nothing's perfect, of course. Presumably there are some limitations to this type of approach to practicing law. What might some of those things be? Yeah, so one of the one of the things that's really interesting about these algorithms is they're able to identify patterns that are that are hidden in big bodies of of data, of case law, of information. And and that's really valuable in a lot of circumstances. We know that the accuracy of the algorithms is about 90%. But what's interesting is about those the 10% of the cases that the algorithms uh, get wrong is sometimes they make errors that to humans would be really bizarre and odd. They're picking up a lot of patterns that are real and then occasionally picking up patterns that, that are spurious or not real. And so the nice thing is about pairing these algorithms and those unexpected mistakes with a human expert or you know a human who has professional training, they'll be easily able to spot those kinds of errors and say, well, that's that just doesn't fit for whatever reason. 
uh, and depending on the context, they'll be able to articulate the reason why that doesn't really fit. And usually it's because there's something really novel about the case or something something fundamentally has changed about the background assumptions and, and the case law just misses out on some dimension. And so, but that's something that would make me extremely reluctant to say, oh, we should just automate judicial decision-making because there's no way we should be automating judicial decision-making using these algorithms. These are a very, very valuable input into the process, um, but it's no substitute for having humans in the loop. Technology can often be the great leveler. What does this mean for access to the law? I think it's really great news for the accessibility of legal services uh, more generally. We're already seeing this with uh, a number of low-income legal clinics across the province. So at Blue Jay Legal, we're making employment foresight available to a number of these different clinics. We're actually in 11 or 12 different low-income clinics across the province, and, and these clinics are using our software to give really fantastic advice to uh, low-income litigants who are seeking access to justice. Maybe they, they are encountering some kind of employment law issue with an employer. Maybe they feel like they've been misclassified as independent contractors when actually they should be classified as employees and been, be given access to certain kinds of protections under the Employment Standards Act. Uh, or maybe they've been wrongfully dismissed or they feel like they've been wrongfully dismissed. And so they're seeking advice on what kind of recourse they may be able to have. Now, traditionally, it's been expensive to access legal advice. And in those contexts, it's kind of economically difficult to make a viable practice out of advising folks who have you know, not really lucrative uh, positions that they might, be, might have been wrongfully dismissed from. And so what we're seeing is a lot of cases being run through uh, employment foresight. And I think this is just the beginning of what's going to happen more broadly with the advent of, of AI and machine learning in the law. So it's really great news for access to justice. Benjamin Allery is the Osler Chair of Business Law at the University of Toronto. He's also CEO and co-founder of Blue Jay Legal, a Toronto company that uses artificial intelligence and machine learning to predict legal outcomes. It's an example of how tech can outperform humans and fill in knowledge gaps, but it also points to how tech can help make us perform better in our jobs, not simply replace us. In a minute, we'll hear from another lawyer turned entrepreneur who's using technology to change the way lawyers view and collect electronic evidence. But first, a message from our sponsor. This podcast was made possible through the support of Fidelity Investments. For decades, they've been giving their clients a world of innovation by investing in companies that invent the future. Ask your financial advisor about Fidelity Investments or visit fidelityinnovators.ca. As the saying goes, necessity is the mother of invention. And while Puneet Tiwari was practicing law in Toronto, he saw the need to streamline the way electronic evidence is collected. That's what led to the creation of EviChat. The company designed software that enables lawyers to efficiently sort and review the mountains of evidence generated by social media and online messaging. I started by asking him why he left his career in law to launch a business. When I was practicing, I found that uh, almost all of my clients were giving me uh, screenshots of text messages to use as evidence. Um, you know, one or two screenshots was, you know, fine to manage, but five, ten, or a hundred became increasingly difficult to search through, manage, and refer back to. 
So I, I tried to find a solution I could pay for to use myself, and I couldn't find one. And they say it's always best to scratch your own itch. So I got tired of complaining and decided uh, with my co-founder to, to start Avichat. Walk me through how it works. What's the process and what do people see in front of them? Right. So uh, you're a lawyer. A client walks into your office and says, you need to read these text messages my, my spouse has been sending me. They're abusive. And they go back 10 years. So instead of getting screenshots, now you can simply send your client an invite. They download an app to their phone, select the contact and message thread from their phone and hit send. Then all the messages from that particular contact immediately get sent to a platform where as a lawyer you can review, make redactions, and then export it in a transcript format for court. So this is not just about social media. It's all about content and conversations. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, there's so much... Uh, evidence now created on a mobile device. And if you think about it, everyone's using their phone all the time. And uh, if you were to be involved in a, a lawsuit, wouldn't it be nice to have a peek at their phone? Because that's where all the good stuff is. So the trend I, I see in the next you know, five years is we're going to shift more from the computer, if we haven't completely, directly to the mobile device. And we want to be at the forefront of that evidence collection industry. Other than SMS, where else is this evidence being collected from? Any types of chat. So uh, WhatsApp, iMessage, uh, Facebook Messenger, Twitter DMs, um, th those are the main ones. And we also actually archive and collect websites. So somebody's Facebook profile. Uh, what's popular is actually newspaper articles where somebody's client might be mentioned. Uh, in case that article changes, they can, you know, lawyers can refer back to it uh, to prove defamation or just for their own uh, records. So how does it work when it comes to analyzing those conversations? What is it that's being looked for? Right. Well, we leave that to the to the lawyers mainly, but uh, let's call it the smoking gun. That, that's what they're looking for. Someone uh, admitting some kind of fraud or agreeing to a contract or, you know, several instances of, uh, you know, a type of abuse or, or something like that. Does that happen more than you think? Are people fairly foolish with their devices and what they'll actually put out there in the world? Absolutely. Uh, it happens way more than you, than you think. And uh, even uh, you know, any professionals listening out there, uh, they might be speaking to a colleague over email and they might say, let's take this offline. And they start texting each other. Well, uh, we're going to try and find that. That's not exactly offline. <laughs> exactly. What types of law could benefit the most from the software? Honestly, all types of law. The sweet spots are family law, employment law, and uh, IP litigation or you know, any type of uh, litigation where the clients are more uh, individuals. However, there is a big issue with uh, you know, corporate, commercial, and large-scale litigation where a lot of the lawyers still haven't caught on and are still saying, well, you know what, our clients or corporations, they don't use text messages or anything like that. And uh, I will say with confidence that's not true. Yeah, this will clearly change the way lawyers practice if it hasn't already. Right. Uh, some of our big law firm adopters have said that they've made it part of their discovery plan for each and every file to ask about the cell phone, look at the cell phone, and try to get what's available. Not a lot of lawyers uh, have caught on to that in Canada, at least. Uh, actually, majority of our clients are American. Um, but over the next five years, we, we anticipate a massive shift. So what percentage of your clients would be American or outside of Canada? And, and in terms of sheer numbers, how many lawyers are actually using the platform? 
So we have uh, about uh, just under 200 actual lawyers using the platform, and 75% of them are American. Why do you think that is? Uh, good question. I, I think the main reason is just population. There's way more lawyers in the States. But uh, what I found, and this is kind of anecdotal evidence, but American lawyers will take a fly on something and, and try it out um, because there's so much competition in the States. They want to be ahead. They want to offer better service to clients. In Canada, they're much more conservative. Uh, I, th- I think once we, uh, we announced one of uh, a large partnership with a large firm here in Canada, Literally the same day, four other large firms inquired uh, about our service. So it's more uh, it's more reactive here. They were waiting for a shoe to drop. Exactly, exactly. And then it did. Yes. Would you say a lot of lawyers are avoiding e-discovery altogether? Well, e-discovery is the new discovery. So, you know, I, I've heard this before. The e can likely be dropped in most cases, but it still mainly email and other types of documents. Mobile e-discovery, I think, is still in its infancy. And a lot of lawyers, especially in Canada, uh, agree to ignore the mobile device. Opposing counsel will have sort of uh, a handshake agreement. Let's not go there. Wow, I'm surprised by that. Although maybe I'm not surprised. Do you think the law has been slow to embrace change and new technologies? Well, I I really think they're trying. Uh, You know, there's something called technological incompetence. And uh, a lawyer has a duty to know what technology is out there and and, and use it best. And uh, however, there are still lawyers that say, well, we we don't find anything on the mobile device. It's still just for kids. Uh, That kind of attitude is still kind of prevalent here in Canada. It is changing, though. Do you see this type of software affecting law um, as a whole? The law per se, as in, you know, what type of evidence is admissible, I I don't think so too much. But the way lawyers practice, I I think lawyers are smartening up and, and, uh, you know, they're looking for efficiencies in their own practice because at the end of the day, they're running a business, right? And uh, no matter if you're a partner at a firm or solo practitioner, it's that bottom dollar you're you're looking for. And if if you're spending or a clerk is spending time reviewing evidence in sort of a backwards manner, that's... Often time that you can't bill back to your client, uh, that's not a good way to run your practice. So we're helping lawyers to practice law better. Uh, they can focus more on practicing law than worrying about menial tasks like looking through a screenshot. Do you think it was required for somebody like you starting a business like this to actually have a legal background yourself? It, it definitely helped. Um, when I first mentioned it to my co-founder, Nilesh, his immediate reaction was, that doesn't already exist. And that's often the reaction when I, when I speak to, uh, let's call them laymen, non-lawyers. Uh, it's something like that didn't exist. You didn't think of this, right? But something like this built specifically for lawyers, it didn't really exist. And uh, there are a few others in their infancy like us. But uh, like a lawyer had to face the problem, feel the pain themselves, and then try to solve it. And, and that's what happened here. Uh, there Very little has changed since the 70s in the practice of law. And it's just ripe for innovation right now. Why do you think that's been the case? Well, uh, you know, if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Law has always been expensive, kind of out of the reach to most people. 
but now there's more lawyers and they're competing against each other. There's an articling crisis a few years ago and uh, all these new lawyers, they're all trying to be more competitive, get more clients. And whether that's having a really fancy website that attracts more clients or having you know the ability to collect payment online, these are all slight innovations that help their practice. And, and the competition is really driving that, I feel. Did you have concerns about rocking the boat when you first got started? No, it, I mean, that's what excited me. Uh, disruption, you mentioned that word earlier. And, and uh, whenever a founder hears that word, it's, you know, bells go off. And I don't really see it as just I'm disrupting anything. I'm just providing, making something that already exists much easier and much more efficient. But it's always fun to think, hey, I, I am making a change. If you have a new innovation, it doesn't necessarily have to be disruptive. It just has to make something better. Based on your background as a lawyer and now as an entrepreneur, having built this platform, what is your advice to people, generally speaking, when it comes to the management of the communication over their devices? Honestly, if you're not comfortable with your grandmother being read a text message, you probably shouldn't send it. (laughs) Puneet Tiwari is co-founder of EvaChat a Toronto company that enables lawyers to efficiently sort and review evidence from social media. I'm pretty careful about my feeds and what I post, but I don't think as much about what I put on text. It might be time for me to rethink that position. Sometimes we don't consider how much we reveal on our devices. On the next episode of Industry Interrupted, we find out how Canada's financial system is being challenged by the introduction of digital currency into the mainstream. If we have this kind of transactional infrastructure without a centralized profit motive, there's, there's really no excuse for charging people just to provide a conduit for payments anymore. Thank you to Fidelity Investments, the sponsor of this episode. Industry Interrupted is produced by Laura Regeer, Anne Lang, Guy Dixon, and Stephanie Chan. If you like what you heard, you can rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Get in touch with us at podcast at globeandmail.com. I'm Sean Stanley.